Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. We finished last week the uh, sermon series that we've been in for uh, most of this year and as we walk through the first book of the Psalter. And over the next three weeks, I want to take some time to look at the uh, birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to start this morning in Luke chapter 2. Next week will be in Matthew chapter 2, the parallel to this passage. And then the 29th will be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. And um, I'm looking forward to all three of these sermons. Although, um, there's, there is some intimidation. People have talked about me preaching in Hebrews um, and how they would be intimidated to preach in Hebrews. And I can't understand that, but probably the most intimidating passages for a pastor to speak on and preach on are passages like Luke chapter 2. Because the reality is, most of you, if I just, uh, in a room by ourselves, pulled you to the side and said, what does Luke 2 say? You would get a majority of it. You might not quote it word for word, but you would know what Luke 2 is all about. And you've read it for years. And so it gets intimidating to stand in front of a crowd full of churched folks who love the Lord and who have studied this passage or read this passage over Christmas dinner or in front of the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve or at Christmas gatherings with friends and family and churches alike. And so then you rise to speak on a passage. And the, what's intimidating is, number one, it's a weighty passage. It's a narrative, but it's, it's, a, it's a weighty passage. Number two, the intimidating part is the danger for you is to... Uh, kick it into neutral mentally and kind of go off to the grocery list or go off to uh, the upcoming family event that you're trying to plan for your home because you know all about Luke 2. So, you know, okay, well, I got this one. So I want to encourage you. I'm going to try to deal with a weighty passage with you this morning, a passage that is crucial to our faith, and I don't want you to check out because you've heard it before. So it's, it's work for both of us. Um, and, and we have to hope that the Spirit of God will attend to the he- preaching of His Word and bring it home to our hearts. I've entitled the sermon, A Birth to Bring Glory and Peace. The passage is set, uh, set in Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Let's read it together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And, he gave birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, or wrapped in pieces of cloth, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with him whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This passage, as I said, is very famous. And not, not famous because of one of the reasons you might know it, especially the children in attendance. In 1965, there was... uh, Quite a stir in Hollywood. You see, a writer who had been made famous in the newspapers across America had grown weary of all the commercialism that surrounded the Christmas holiday. As a Christian, he believed that the real meaning of Christmas was being swallowed. And so he wrote what has gone down as one of history of America's great cartoons. You know it as... A Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? The Christmas story according to Charlie Brown. The producers that surrounded that, that event told Charles Schwartz's people, if he releases this, it will destroy Peanuts. If he releases this on national TV, he will be the laughing stock of America. When questioned why, they turned to one scene in the movie. On the stage walks little Linus. The spotlight hits. And what does he read? All of Luke 2. The account I just read to you. The producer said, America will not tolerate such overt religion on TV. Charles Schultz sent back word. You can take it as it is or I will send it out myself. I think it paid off for him. (laughs) And it paid off for those same executives who tried to bully him out of putting Luke 2 on TV this way. Linus struck a chord with America not because he was a little kid and not because the, the, the writing of Charles Schultz was so over the top and grand, but because the Word of God pierced into, I think, the celebration once again. And God's Word is powerful. When it's read and when it's honored and when it's given its right dueful place, it pierces our very hearts. This story is about a birth. A birth of a son who would bring glory to God and peace to His people. Look at the first four verses or the first seven verses here. The first thing we see in this story is that God centered all of history 
on this one event. God centered everything there was to do with history on one event. And He built a stage to make it happen. Now, by that, this is what I mean. In these first seven verses, the writer, Luke, narrates to us this story moving in successive order. Universal, regional, personal, or individual. Look at the the writing. In those days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that what? All the world. It's universal. Universal in the sense that all of the Roman world, which by in that time was the largest chunk of the known world, largest chunk of society, was under the rule of Caesar Augustus. Luke is straining to tell us this is a global event. This is not some small event that happened in some small town six miles outside the walls of Jerusalem. It is an event that impacts every people group on the planet. That's what he's telling us. Caesar Augustus was known in that day to be very powerful to say the least. There's no parallel to him in our day for certain. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar, adopted by Julius Caesar and given the name Caesar Augustus or a divine ruler. He was known as the sovereign of the universe. He was held and praised as the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. He was given due respect by every culture on the planet. Because he wielded the most power of any one human to that point in Christian history, I mean in world history. He spoke a word in the right day at the right time, and he gave a decree, and it went out to his whole empire that they should all be registered. Now I want to say, what is he doing here? He's taxing the people. He's taxing the people and he's counting his army. The only reason ancient rulers brought people to their hometowns was A, to collect money, and B, to find out who was capable of fighting in the next war. And so, don't think of this as people thought, this is family vacation. Hey, we got the news today. We're going to go back and see Mama. Let's go. And everybody was excited. No. They got the news from the heralds that went throughout the emperor's empire, and immediately their hearts were most likely fearful. Uh Uh-oh, what's happening? What conflict are we about to enter? What's going to happen to my baby boy? Will they call my husband away to the army? Or anger, small businessmen alike, in that age as ours, hate taxes. Right? I'm already giving them my left arm. Now they want my right i got to go back to my little village where I grew up. I moved 700 miles from there and started a business and I've been successful. And now the ruler of the world wants to take what little bit I've got. They weren't joyful. They weren't happy. They weren't excited. They were inconvenienced. I can imagine the little kids, you know. Kids, we're taking a trip. When are we going to get there? Six months. Can you imagine that car ride? I didn't like the car ride to Chicago, Illinois. It took about... Uh, four hours from Cincinnati. I didn't like to ride home. And we got here and could have gotten here in one day. Can you imagine traveling across the known world to get back to where you're from? 
mean, some of these people were long travels away. So their hearts were not filled with joy. Their hearts, the people's hearts, were filled with maybe anger, maybe fear, definitely inconvenience. But the sovereign of all sovereigns had spoken in their minds and they were bound to answer. They were going to be registered. Luke strains to make sure we know that this was a universal event. This is something that happened to the known world, the known civilized world. They all went to be registered, each to his own town, and then we see the regional influence. Joseph also went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, Bethlehem. So it's a regional event. It's not just universal. It's also regional. Joseph, who lived in Galilee, moved from Nazareth down to outside of Jerusalem in the city of David, Bethlehem. And in that, it's very individual, isn't it? Because the the plan that was enacted here, that God enacted, not only affected all the Roman Empire, it not only affected all of Israel and Galilee and Nazareth and Bethlehem, but it affected one family, didn't it? Joseph, with his nine-month pregnant wife, or future soon-to-be wife, whichever way you take that word betrothed, I think it's very likely that um, what, what the writer here is trying to say is that, that Mary moved with Joseph for one of two reasons. Either they were near to marriage and had not been married officially yet, or they by word and by commitment were married and had not consummated their marriage. And so therefore he continued to use the term betrothed. Whichever way you take that, it inconvenienced this small family. Now, ladies, I've never been pregnant. Thank God I never will be. But anyone in the room that has been can imagine riding on the back of a burrow any small distance at nine months pregnant, right? Or near to nine months pregnant. This affected the universe. It affected the region and it affected this small family, this young up-and-coming family. It wasn't in their necessary, necessarily most convenient timing. It was in God's timing. God centered all of human history around this event. And then He moved the players on the stage so that they brought about what He desired. Now I want to take a step back from the description as being universal, regional, an individual and say secondly about this point that this is not the plan of man being carried out this is the plan of the eternal God being carried out when did God plan for his son to be born in Bethlehem well that's a fair and honest question we might arrive at several answers I believe biblically the best answer is this Ephesians 1 says that before the world was formed or made, God chose us in Christ. So I at least believe this plan began before the world began. Right? Okay? Now, where the philosophers get a little the philosophers get into a little bit of question or quagmire is, did God plan this after the sin event or before the sin event? 
Well, the simplest way for my simple mind to understand it is that he planned this before the sin event. Before Adam chose to rebel, God in his infinite sovereign wisdom chose to save his people. And then, not just moving the Roman Empire and moving a region and moving a family, but now look at it in God's global setting. God, we can then say, created the universe for this event. You may ask me, why did God create the galaxies, the billions and billions of galaxies and stars? Why did He create such an expansive creation? All He was doing was building a world for us humans to live on. Why did He have to build all this extra stuff? Because it takes a grand stage to house such a grand son in Jesus Christ. The whole world was built and constructed from the furthest reaches of the stars to the most intimate stable of a Bethlehem manger for one purpose, that God be glorified in the birth of His Son. That's the event we're reading about this morning. That's the, that's the awesome nature of this passage. God constructed a stage, and that stage is beyond our comprehension. Even in our modern world, we estimate at how big the world is. I told my children several weeks ago, we don't know how far the universe goes. We know it ends somewhere out there, and we have an estimate on where it ends, but nobody's ever been to the end of the universe and then seen nothing and said, there it is. That's how big this is, kids. And why did God do it? So he might be glorified in the birth of his son. God centered all of human history around this event, the birth of his son. He was born in Bethlehem. You notice that he says he was in, that Joseph was living in Galilee at the time, in Nazareth. He moved to Judea in this census time to the city of David. Some of the readers might have thought he was going to say Jerusalem, but then he moves to Bethlehem. Why? Because in Micah 5, verse 2, God had promised that the little town of Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Savior. The despised, the rejected Bethlehem. The little shepherd's village. The little despised place on the map. The, might we say in county language, the outskirts of you pick the city, Piedmont, Ohatchee, we like to poke fun at each other, right? No, Aaron says no. Ohatchee's the center of the universe. And, and yeah, I understand. But that's the way these people would have thought. I mean, he wasn't even born in the capital of his own country. He was born in a little shepherd's village. A little forgotten dot on the map where nobody's come from. God had a grand scheme and a grand plan which He brought in and acted at the right day for the universe, a region, and even an individual family. And He moved the whole world so that He might bring about the birth of His Son in the place He had promised He would be born back in the prophet's writings, Micah 5. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, I emphasize that because I think it's important. The birthright was passed to the firstborn son. So Jesus inherited from his father and from his mother 
a birthright, and this birthright was the birthright of the line of David in the purest sense. He would carry on the family name. Now he's going to have other brothers and he's going to have other sisters, but none of them will have the responsibility of the firstborn. And they wrapped him in a poor baby's clothing. He didn't have a, a, a due attire to bring home from the hospital in. He was just wrapped in pieces of cloth to keep him warm. And they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That word translated inn there. Most likely better translated guest room. Now it's controversial because we've all had nativity sets for years, right? Jesus was born in a barn. You've seen that nativity set. I have one, I think. I think I broke baby Jesus a few years ago. We won't get into the events surrounding that, but it cost me a little. We've all had those, right? The nativity sets. We've even seen the movies that they are a little more historical. No wood uh, barns, but caves. But the word that he uses here, he uses also in Luke chapter 10. Now, I want to turn your attention there because I do think it's important we see this. First of all, we must understand there weren't very many places in that part of the world where we would have known them to be inns, like motels or hotels. There weren't a lot of those in their day. The Christian tradition grew up around the fact of hospitality, grew up around the need of travelers to come into a home when they were on the road because there was no safe place for them to stay while they were traveling. So there weren't a whole lot of hotels. It wasn't like the interchanges on I-20 down here, right? In Luke 10, Jesus uses uh, this very term in Luke's recording of the story of the sending out of the 72. He uses this very same term. If you look at verse 4, it says, Carry no money baggies, giving them instructions, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house. Every time you see the word house, it's the same word that our passage says in. It's the same Greek term. Now later in Luke 10, in in the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan is carried to a place and the innkeeper, the word innkeeper is Used And it is a different Greek term. Now, I don't mean to make too much of this, but I just want to maybe reset your thinking a little. It's very possible that Jesus was born outside in a cave. Outside where? uh, In a cave. It's also equally, by the text, possible that he was born in a relative's home. A poor relative, because his relatives would have been very common. And the way their housing was built. Now imagine this, ladies. You like your clean home at this time of the year. The bottom floor of the house was where they kept their livestock in the cold months. The upper part of the house was where they slept and ate and had their, their, their time. The guest room was filled. There wasn't any room for them. So they had to sleep downstairs, which in their day would have been the equivalent of a stable or a barn. And Jesus was born there. So it, it's not, if you want to hold it, that he was born in a, in a cave, that's fine. And very, 
very much could be the case. But it just seems with the word he chose here and the way it's used in other parts of the Gospel of Luke that it was more likely a house where his family had gathered gathered for this census and it was overrun because of that and Joseph got there with Mary and there wasn't any room for them. And so they slept downstairs where the animals slept. It doesn't change the story, but I think it helps us to think about his coming was not spectacular. Though God had brought the whole world, in a sense, into an uproar to bring him to Bethlehem that he might be born there. Though God had created the whole universe so that the whole universe was a stage for Jesus' birth, do we not think God could have given one single bed in a home had He wanted to? But rather there was no bed. So they went downstairs and slept with the animals or they were outside in a cave sleeping with the animals. Either way. Why? I believe the purpose is so He would identify with the lowliest of the low. It's not just that our Savior wasn't born in Herod's palace. It's not just that our Savior wasn't born in the big city of Jerusalem. It's not just that He was born in Bethlehem, but He was born into a relative's home who didn't even have a place for Him to sleep. You ever been there? At the bottom? Our Savior, I think what God's wanting to say is, your Savior identifies with you. He's been at the bottom, physically speaking, relationally speaking. He's been ignored. He's been relegated to the place that nobody else really wanted. He identifies with us. The whole world built for Him. The universe moved like chess pieces on a board so He might come to Bethlehem. All His own family inconvenience, not a bed for Him to sleep in. While she had her baby, but rather he was born at the lowest of the low. So he might identify with you and with me. God centered all of world history around this one event. Secondly, in our passage, we see that God brought Jesus into the world for all people. Verse 8. So in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. And they were keeping watch over their flock by night. Now these shepherds give us another indication of that point I made with the word in and him sleeping with the animals. Here Jesus is identifying in his birth with the least of the least. These are not shepherds in the sense of they own the sheep maybe. Because sheep owners most likely would have slept in their house. These are the hired hands that are sleeping with the sheep out in the field that his birth is announced to. The lowest of the low, and a poor man at that, is who God chooses to announce the birth of his son to. Because God intended the birth of Jesus to impact all people. He could care less about your status. He could care less about your wealth. He could care less about your family name. He could care less about what city you live in or what place you choose to dwell, what neighborhood you're from. He doesn't care. He announced the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to shepherds, hired hands, keeping their flocks out in the field at night. 
But don't misunderstand, this birth is not a common birth. It's not a birth that should be overlooked because it was a, involving a poor family, a small poor family, an insignificant family. It's not to be relegated to lack of importance because he announced it to shepherds because look who announced the birth. Look in verse 9. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. God didn't mean to communicate that this is insignificant because it was done in an insignificant place on the map with an insignificant family, with an insignificant audience like shepherds. He's doing that to identify with all of us and all peoples. He's doing that, I believe, to communicate that Jesus didn't come for the wealthy and the rich and the wise and the, and the exceeding and success, but rather He came for the poor and the needy and the humble and the broken and the outcast. But then He turns right around in verse 9 and says, This is no common birth, but I will bring the announcement by an angel from heaven. The glory of the Lord shone around them at that moment when the angel appeared. And they were filled with fear, like the fear of God that Proverbs speaks of. And so the angel makes it very plain to them. What does he make plain to them? God brought this one, Jesus, into the world for all people. And this is what he was to do. This is the good news that is for all the people. You notice that? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. First of all, we need to know that this is a Savior that's being born. By His very name, Jesus, which is also in the Hebrew, Joshua, God saves. The purpose of His coming is to save. Secondly, we see that He is Christ, or He is the Messiah. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one that has been promised since Genesis chapter 3, and now He's being born in Bethlehem. He's the one that would crush the head of Satan, although his heel would be struck. He's the one that would come and be the seed of Abraham to bring a blessing to all nations. He's the one who would come and build again the temple, the great temple of his father David and sit on the throne that his father David had possessed. He's the one who would be the promised one. He is not just the Savior or the promised one, but He is the Lord. We see that Jesus here is exalted as the Lord, which means He's the Master, He's the Sovereign, He's the Ruler. Don't mistake His birth in a, in a, in a, in a stall with animals to mean He's of common substance. No, this is the Savior promised to rule the world. And He came to us on that day, on this day, the angel says, born the Savior, Christ the Lord. It's a historical event, isn't it? It's very clear from this passage. This is not mythology. This is not the way you write a fairy tale. This is a very, in a sense, boring account of a real event that would change the world. And their sign you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. In little pieces of linen, he'll be wrapped and lying in a manger. Now his announcement was made by one single angel and the glory of the Lord shone forth, but the worship due to Jesus can't be contained by one angel. So what happened at that point? All of the angels of heaven were made visible. 
And they were singing one unison song, or one saying one unison statement. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. God brought Him into the world for all people. Notice that His coming would mean the glory of God and the peace among His people that was long hoped for. We, we, we cannot separate these two things. Verse 14, the announcement in verse 14 is very important. The glory and peace that are mentioned here are married together. Let me tell you this, you cannot have the peace that's mentioned here unless you know the glory. This is not some vague promise and hopeful promise that one day people won't fight wars anymore and one day people won't fight in their homes anymore and people won't won't argue and backbite. No, this isn't some vague promise. This is a statement toward those who would be saved. If you want peace, you must have the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among the men with whom He is well pleased. Or the NASB, I think, is the one that says, peace with them who find His favor. His grace. Now I know the King James Version rules the day in these kinds of passages because again, it's the famous book that was written, the Bible translation that was written for reading publicly and it was read publicly for years and it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But everyone now agrees that is a poor rendering of the Greek here. The NIV, the NASB, the ESV, all modern translations translate it something like Peace among those with whom he is pleased or peace among those with whom have found his favor. Okay? So this all people statement is qualified. There's a universal announcement that Jesus is born. And then there's a qualification that the only ones who will be happy and joyful about this birth are those with whom God has shed his grace on. This is the standard way that God operates in announcing the good news. It is a universal call. My son is being born. Give him the praise due his name. And then there's this very specific narrowing of the application. But the ones who will be pleased are the ones whom I've given grace to. Are the ones who I'm pleased with. Are the ones that have accepted my glory in the form of my son. So let's look at the glory. What glory is he talking about here? It's John 1. Um, If we look over just a little bit there, in John 1, the account is given that Jesus, being in the the Word, dwelled with God and was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, going back to my earlier point, says that the whole universe was created through Him and for Him. The whole world was created for Him. We have to know this glory. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in Bethlehem. Christ, the Savior, who is the Lord, was born. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who, who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So my point is, the angels, and I think the point of the angels' announcement is this. The glory that is due to God is that men recognize that that glory can only be had in Jesus Christ. He is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is not some vague promise that all the world's going to be made right, although it will be made right one day. This is not a vague promise that if you'll just love Jesus, uh, that, that no harm will ever come upon you or your family. This is a very specific announcement. The glory of God, Jesus Christ, when He comes, brings peace to those who have received and been welcomed into the grace of God. Peace. What does He mean by peace? What does He mean by peace? He means, Romans 5.1, peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by Christ, we have peace with God. You can't have the peace announced in this announcement until you have Christ. You can't have this peace unless you know Him as your personal Savior. Because the glory must come with the peace. can never be divorced from the peace. It secondly means, I think, that we have to have peace as far as is possible with us with all men. So because we have peace with God, we can now have peace with our fellow man. We can now say, I know I've been mistreated in this situation, but I will not respond in vengeance or anger because I'm at peace with God. And because there's higher purposes in the world than my name being known as righteous or right or good. So peace with God brings peace with our fellow man. Romans 12, 14 through 18 give us very specific instruction built on the fact that we should go beyond what is reasonable almost, at least go until it's very reasonable to have peace with all men. But there was a commentator that helped me with this last one because I didn't think of it. In between those two, peace with God and peace with our fellow man, this peace that's being spoken of here, this salvific peace, this peace which means we are at harmony and have right standing before God in heaven, this peace not only means we're at peace with God and with our fellow man, but it means we're at peace in our own souls. The very reason so many of you are not at peace this morning with your fellow man is because you still walk around in a world filled with guilt and regret. The truth is you're not yet forgiven in your own heart when God has forgiven you. And this is why He was born, to bring peace with God and peace with our fellow man, but more importantly than our fellow man, second to our peace with God is peace within our own souls. It was, it's interesting to me, Dave and I didn't talk about this at all, and yet the reading for today, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, is the reference, I believe, that applies to this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
That word anxious can include anxiousness as in worry. It can include guilt as in a fretful disposition because we're guilty of something. It can include worrying over future events, worrying over past events, worrying over present events and situations that we face. That word anxiousness is all-encompassing of being disquieted in our souls. Don't be disquieted. Don't be stirred up about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, this birth was universal, regional, and individual. And this birth designed by God was for all people that you might know Him the glory of God so you can have peace with God peace within your own soul and peace with your fellow man there's no better existence than that one I don't care if you live in the highest of the high economic status if you don't have those three things you don't have anything and I don't care if you don't know where your next meal comes from If you have those three things, you have everything. And so finally, this passage tells us that God brought Jesus into the world for His glory and for His peace. That's the last thing we see. It was for all people and it was for His glory and for His peace. What is the response what is the response of the people who were, had this birth announced to them? Well, they immediately got up and left and went to Bethlehem into the city. And they found the sign that was spoken to them. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger. Can you imagine their surprise? I mean, even, even though there were no Dr. Johansons in this day. And babies were born in homes regularly, okay? Without doctors. The last thing you expect to find happening is a baby born in a stall with animals, right? I mean, not exactly a clean place to give birth. Where's the warm water and the towels at least, right? I mean, he, they, can you imagine the shepherds? They go to this, wherever it was, cave, guest, lack of a guest room house down in the basement, are in the lower floor. And they walk in thinking, I mean, is this real? And there he is, just like the angel said he would be. What is their response? What should your response be? Because you have seen this morning that God moved heaven and earth from creation till his birth, to bring him to the stage at the right moment, at the right time, in the right city, born to the right family, with the right lineage from David, firstborn in his family. You've seen this morning that that purpose in that was to bring glory to God and peace with God, peace within yourself and peace with your fellow men. Now what should your response be, Christian, to the fact that you know these things? They glorified God from their hearts and they went out to tell about the good news that they had heard so often in Christmas we do some good things like remembering Christ and doing Advent with our families and, 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 and giving gifts to one another in a way to memorialize the greatest gift ever given we do a lot of good things 
But don't miss the opportunity to give glory to God by telling others the good news. These shepherds left the house or the cave, whatever you want. And they went back into Bethlehem praising God in such a way that others knew something significant was happening. And can you imagine the little villagers waking from their sleep, crowded town, everybody inconvenienced, and these shepherds running through town telling everybody, dude, the whole world has changed. What are you talking about? We were outside last night, these ang- this angel came, and then the whole world lit up with angels and glory. And we went and found this baby wrapped in swallowing clothes in a manger. In a manger? Who's born in a manger? The king of the universe is born in the manger. He's the promised one. He's the one that's the consolation of Israel. Can you imagine the rest of the people in town like, dude, drink your coffee and sit in the corner and be quiet. And then there were those that probably said, it's happening. And then there was those that said, we'll see. And you'll get the same response this year. If you share the good news, you'll get the ones that say, come on, man, get over yourself. That's a fairy tale. Or you'll have the ones who'll say, really? He was born? I can believe in him? And they'll believe. And you'll have those that say, well, we'll wait and see. But don't let any of those responses control your response to the glory of God. Be a teller of the good news. In this Christmas season and in all seasons of life. And so we have the greatest story ever told. Why is it the greatest story ever told? Well, because it doesn't end in a manger. It doesn't end in Bethlehem. It ends, again, just outside on the edges of the capital city, Jerusalem. The story ends with this son... Dying to make peace with God on your behalf. It ends him buried for three days. It ends with him stepping forth in full glorious light on that Sunday morning. It ends 40 days later with him resurrecting to the right hand of the Father. It ends, it ends people with him coming again with that host of angels, and us dwelling in His habitation forever. He is our God, and we are His people. It's the greatest story ever written, because it's the story on which all of history hinges. Now I'm telling you, if you can't tell other people about that, you can't tell them much. I'm not a big Duck Dynasty fan. I know. I should be. They're good people, obviously. But something that's repeated often by one of the men on that show that I like, simple country logic, right? He says, you say you don't believe in Jesus? You don't think it was a significant event? Then why have you built your calendar on him for the last 2,000 years? All of world history centered on one thing, the birth of the Messiah, the Lord, our Savior.